got a lot to cover today. <laughs> a lot to cover. So we're going to be back in the book of Joshua. Now this study we're doing, this is our 37th message in the book of Joshua. Praise the Lord. We are in chapter number six. Um, and this whole study has been called A Life Lived for God. And we see a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of Joshua. Last week, um, the message was titled All Quiet on the Eastern Front. And what we did there, we were in chapter number six, and we focused our attention on just verse number 10. Verse number 10 says this in Joshua 6.10. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, then shall you shout. So what we did last week is we considered four different things. Um, We considered, first of all, the people's expectations. Then we considered Joshua's proclamation. Then the order's duration. And then we also looked at the order's motivation. And what we realized, the fact that this expectations of people had heard this unusual order and now they've got a they've got expectations of what the how they believe the battle would go but we know from what we understand about this scripture is the fact that the assault on Jericho is going to go very differently than what they expect right they have an expectation of how a traditional battle would be fought but God is going to shift that and what happens is they're going to be forced to to trust God they're going to have to acknowledge the fact that they don't know what's to come and it's going to be through their lack of knowledge that they're actually going to have to learn how to trust in him, And what happens is through this time of, of silence, it's going to strengthen their faith. It's going to strengthen their, their trust. And as they grow in their faith through this occurrence, what's going to happen is God's going to eventually, through that same faith, bring victory. Then we looked at the, the proclamation. We saw Joshua's choice not to share very much information. He was actually pretty reserved on what he talked to them about. And what we saw was the fact that Joshua was selective in the fact that he understood how much just the tiny little bit of What's the word I would use? Uh, dissension could cause, right? Just the smallest amount of doubt. So what happened was he gave the men only the information that they needed to know. Then we looked at the order's duration. And we realized that not only was this 24 hours of silence, but it was seven days of 24 hours of silence. So like a quiet game that lasts for an entire week, right? So we realized that this the silence, right? What it did was it united them. There was this a collective uh, 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 unity in that moment. But what it also did was they would remain silent until they had a collective shout. And we'll see that as we go forward in our study, not today. But then we looked at the order's motivation. And we looked at the power of silence, the power of silence in the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and then in other occurrences in Scripture where, they honored, where God honored stillness and quiet and silence. And recognizing the fact that in those moments, right, what happens is there's listening in those moments of silence. There's, there's learning in those moments of silence. And that's where God shapes us. And we recognize the fact that in those moments for them, this silence and their unity around this and following their orders, that they're going to grow and eventually it's going to bring down the walls of Jericho. But what we also saw is the fact that guess how important it is for us to remember how, how key silence is and can be in our lives. Because you recognize in silence, right? In silence and in quiet. Many times when you see, uh, when Elijah hears from God, he doesn't hear it in the, in the roar or in the thunder. He hears it in the still, small voice of God, in the quiet. And we recognize the fact that, guess what? God many times speaks loudest to our hearts in those moments of quiet. Because guess what? Life can be full of noise, can be full of confusion, can be full of frustration and emotion. And God says sometimes, you know what? Just be still. Be still and see that I am God. So as we transition this morning, what we're going to happen is we're going to go from instructions over to actions. 
Okay? So what's happening today is now they're mobilizing the forces and they're actually starting the march to, to, to Jericho. The message this morning is titled, Don't Quit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of the word of God. Uh, Lord, every week I just marvel at uh, what you've given us. And uh, Lord, it's supernatural. It is uh, remarkable. It is unending. And uh, God, though I've spent many hours of my life studying, and I've barely scratched the surface. And uh, Lord, I do look forward to one day standing with you and having a, a revelation of all that was there that we missed. And I do pray that you help me to, to get my stumbling tongue out of the way, my feeble mind, Lord, that I am just nothing more than a hindrance to your work. And I pray that you help me to just uh, disappear, Lord, that you might speak uh, to and through us. And uh, we give you thanks and glory. And God, uh, we're humbled before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Joshua 6, verses 11 through 14. It says, So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram horns, ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, and the priests going on and blowing with trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city and returned into the camp. So they did Six days. So here we go. All the anticipation, all that's been they've been working towards, the preparation is finally taking place. They're going to take back the promised land from the usurpers, those folks that have taken it from. Now what we realize is the fact that this place has been under pagan rule for about 700 years at this point in time. Remember, it was based upon a decision that was made, okay? A decision that was guided by God, understand, because recognize God knew the decision that was made to lose the promised land would ultimately one day lead to a circumstance that he would glorify and work through. But if we go back to Genesis 46, verses 2 through 4, here we see uh, Israel or Jacob being confronted or spoken to by God. It says, And God spake unto Israel in the vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down. Remember I told you, Egypt, you always go down to Egypt because Egypt is a picture of the world. He says, go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation, and I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again, and Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. So 705 years prior to this march, Joshua is going to make, or Jacob is going to make a choice. And it's going to be through his choice, he's going to guide his family to move to Egypt. We understand the reason why is because there was a famine that was coming upon the land. There was provision in Egypt, and he knew this. Genesis 46 6 says this, and they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him. And there's another amazing picture in the fact that his son, Joseph, was in a position of political power in Egypt. And the provision of God and the miraculous work through that whole story is just cray cray. But when we look at that story, we're not going to get into it, to, to it today, but it's an awesome picture of provision. What happens is ultimately Jacob's decision. To leave Canaan, what it's going to do is it's going to cause his people to fall into, into slavery. They'll lose the promised land, and they're going to be enslaved for about 400 years. And what we see in that situation is the fact that, listen, we, we, we look at God, and we understand God's nature, right? We understand kind of the way God functions. And we realize that many times God will allow short-term tribulation or short-term adversity for a long-term blessing. Now, we look at 400 years, and we go, whoa, that's a... That's almost twice as old as our country, right? 400 years to us is a big deal, but God says, no, I'm always playing the long game. You've got to realize I've got to 
a bigger thing that I'm working to. Because what happens as a result of the enslavement, we get the Exodus story, right? Now, we spent almost two years going through the Exodus story. In your Bible, there's nothing else that has anywhere close to taking up as many column inches of time and, 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 and description as that Exodus story. It shows up time and time and time. God references it time again and again and again and again and again. Because through it, right, the entire episode is a beautiful, rich tapestry of the hand of God working in the lives of humanity. So when you and I go to the picture book that God's given us, which is the Old Testament, and we go and we look into that picture book, and we see the Israelite story, we see ourselves. God pictures it for us, and he shows us not only that God always has a plan, which he does, but also the fact that sometimes that plan involves suffering. Right? Sometimes that's part of the plan. Not for the purpose of suffering, okay? God doesn't want us to suffer, but it's because through this suffering, he can shape and direct our lives. You and I are shifted and changed through it. So as we continue in the story of the Israelites today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention on the ark of the Lord. And what's interesting about that ark is today, from we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6, 6 up to the point in Joshua 6, 6, the ark is primarily labeled this way. It's called the ark of of the covenant. But what we'll see in today's passage is the name transitions. It's going to transition to the ark of the Lord. Now if we pay attention as it goes forward from here on in the book of Joshua, it's either going to be called the ark of the Lord or the ark of the covenant of the Lord. What's happening is God's shifting it, right? There's a shift here from an ark that represents the promises of God to an ark that represents the presence of God. It's got his his name in it. And so as we work through this, verses 11 through 14, what we're going to see is we're going to look at the ark of the Lord. We're going to see uh, kind of its its impact on the campaign and on the people, okay? And what we're going to do is first look at the ark. And we're going to consider its presence, its prominence, and its position. And then after that, we're going to actually look at the ark's impact on the Israelites, and we're going to consider their persistence. Joshua chapter number 6, verse 11 says this, So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Now, remember, all of this is being done in complete silence, right? Except outside of the trumpeters, right? They're, they're doing their deal, but that's the only sound. Everyone else is, is silent. But I want you to notice that name change that I talked to you about, that, that name change to the Ark of the Lord, that's, this is where it starts to happen. So notice this, it op- the opening phrase, verse, uh, in verse 9, it says, So the Ark of the Lord compassed the city. The ark of the Lord compassed the city. And at this point in time, we're going to look at the ark's presence. So we know in previous instructions that this is not just the ark of the Lord. Now, notice it's spoken of as a singular, right? The ark of the Lord compassed the city. But we know that there were, in reality, there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers. There were then trumpeters who were blowing horns. Then there was the ark of the Lord. And then there's another group that's following after that group. So we know that because of verse 11 tells us this. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. So we know it's more than just the ark, but it's spoken of singularly. Why is that? And this is why that name change is relevant to the ark of the Lord. What we see in this verse is the entire group, the entire hundreds of thousands of people have a singular identity. They're recognized as a singular identity, embodied in the Ark of the Lord. Because it says the Ark of the Lord uh, uh, circled. So we see as their unified silence and their unified march, not only does it reveal the presence of God, 
Well, to the people of Jericho, for sure. Because they see this one silent force walking. They hear only one sound. It's not the sound of a crowd. There is no sound other than the trumpets playing and this unified body of people marching. But you see also to the soldiers themselves. Because recognize in their silent march, they are a singularly focused body intent on accomplishing the will of God. Listen, they are, a, they are one. And that's a picture for the church. Listen, you and I are to be one. We're supposed to function as one. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 through 27, it says this, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. And one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Man, so what that's saying is, guess what? Your blessing is our blessing, right? Praise the Lord. Something happens in your life, well, praise God. We should be celebrating the successes of those in our church. Excited for what God's doing in your life. But you see, that's where many Christians struggle. This becomes a stumbling block for people. Because instead of sitting there going, man, I'm so happy for you. We have a tendency to think, why not me? I mean, yeah, you got success, but don't I deserve a little bit of success as well? Right? And why is that dangerous? Because it creates division. Right? Suddenly, the Bible warns about envy, strife, covetousness. Those are divisive terms. But then on the, on the other end of the, on the other edge of the coin, or flip it, whatever it is, the other side of whatever we're talking about, I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> Whatever it is, your hardship should be our hardship, right? When you're dealing with something adverse, guess what? Like Jason and Ashley today, this is probably the hardest day Ashley's ever had in her entire life. My heart breaks for them. Amen. Amen. And it should. We should care about people. 1 John 3, 17 to 18 says this, But whoso hath this world's good... And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion with him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word. Don't just say it, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay? So again, if we're not very, very careful, this is a trap that leads to division. What I'm talking about is this, because we get so caught up in our own lives. We get so caught up in what we're dealing with because it's so important to us because you don't understand all that I'm going through that we only have room to worry about anybody else. And we become a vessel of not love, but we become a vessel of selfishness. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, be ye all of one mind, be unified, have compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not render evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, God called us to do this, that ye should inherit a blessing. God says, I want to use your life to minister to your brother and sister. As the Israelites are called to be unified, guess what? So are we. And when we don't care for our brother and what they're suffering and going through because we're consumed with ourselves, what happens is the devil takes that opportunity. And he comes to them, and you know what he does? He makes them feel isolated. He makes them feel unimportant. He makes them feel alone and uncared for. And that suddenly, that person is then divided from the body. And see, we cannot allow that narrative to be true in their lives. It should never happen. Right, right. Amen. We should celebrate our brother's successes and mourn their losses. 
as a body. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 12 finishes this way. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And you see, it's our unity in Christ that allows the world around us to see a picture, a true image of what our loving, living God looks like. And when we love our fellow man and we function as the hands and feet of Christ, what happens is the Lord gets glory. And notice this in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. The Lord said this. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is an internal one, right? This is the inside one. And this, and the second is like unto it. Okay, you want to reveal the first one? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Right? There are two commandments, but they're actually one. One's internal, one's external, but guess what? They work together. You see, it's through love that we find unity. And when we don't love, there is division. And the more that, guys, there's more than enough division in our world today. Amen. Everywhere people look, they find division. It's everywhere. And they should most certainly not see it in the church, in the body of Christ. I mean, remember, we're a peculiar people. We don't look like everybody else. We don't vehemently hate people for their stance. We love them when we pray for them. Now, can our flesh get caught up in things? Can you watch the news Zarek was talking about last week? Can somebody say something stupid and you're like, man, I'd knock you right out, you idiot. <laughs> Do we all, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not, probably not the only one that feels that. I'm sometimes, I'm like, dude, if I was not a Christian, dude, you would be so, <laughs> right? It's hard not to get into that. But when we remember who we are in Christ, what does it do? You know what? I shouldn't feel that way. You know what? But for the, but for the grace of God, that be me. Because I'll just tell you, I was a moron prior to salvation. You would have wanted to punch me in the face, no doubt about it. All of y'all, no matter who how nice you were, you'd all want to punch me in the face. No doubt about it. I was arrogant. I thought I had all the answers in the world. But you know what? Thank God he's shown me that I'm a clueless idiot. And he has all wisdom. Praise the Lord. So what we find is the fact that God's trying to, hey, you know what? I want to unify you. Because if you're not careful, you'll get divided, right? Mm-hmm. What does it say in 1 Peter 5, 8? Be sober, be vigilant for you, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, right? He says, he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And can I just tell you this? Christian homes, Christian relationships, and Christian churches aren't destroyed from outside. Right. They are destroyed from the inside. Yes. Always destroyed from the inside. And can I tell you that when we allow ourselves to be isolated from God... Or from our family, be they physical or spiritual, what happens? Now this, why are we isolated from God? Why are we isolated from people? Because of sin? Because of apathy? Because we believe a lie? Maybe we're caught up in deception? But what happens when we believe that stuff, we serve up ourselves, our families, and our churches to the enemy. And you know what he's doing? He's waiting and looking for whom he may devour and I'm telling you, when you allow divisiveness into your marriage, you are serving up your relationship to the, to the devil to devour it. When you allow division into your church, you're serving that church up and saying, you know what? By all means, devil, have your way. The Bible says don't give place to the devil. Don't open the door and let that idiot into your life. Because you know what? He wants to destroy it. He's not here to help. He will complete, make himself look like an angel of light. He'll look like something appealing. And the Bible says he's a deceiver, man. He's the father of liars. He can make anyone fall for his tricks. And if we're not careful and we're not in the word of God, guess what? We will buy it hook, line, and sinker and we'll fall prey to the same garbage. 
Matthew 12, 25 says this, And Jesus knew, knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And the reason why families and churches are destroyed is because when division is introduced, instead of rebuking it in the name of the Lord and standing on the word of God and calling upon the Lord, what happens is Christian people inexplicably somehow believe that division is somehow becomes a viable solution. And as soon as they accept that, guess what? It's down the drain, man. No matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, it is irrelevant. Our unity is not based upon what we look like or even what we think. It's based upon the Word of God, man. If we're doctrinally sound, yes, and, and we allow the doctrine to unite us, there is no division. Why do my wife and I walk in lockstep? Because we both have our eyes on the Lord, right? I believe the same things that she believes because guess what? We trust God. We come from very different backgrounds. When we met, we were very different. Politically, you name it, all, all over the place. But what's so cool is if here's the husband, here's the wife, and here's God, and the more you go to God, guess what? The closer you get. Amen. The closer you walk with God, the more you become one. And that's the whole goal. And what's marriage? Marriage is a picture of Christ in the, in the church, right? To be one. If there's no divisions, we'll be one in Christ. So when the world sees us in the church or in our life, Wherever it sees us, it experiences the presence of our Savior. So verse 11 shows us the unity of God's people, but it also shows us something really cool. The identity that's derived through the ark, right? They're seen as, as, as one. Then we look at the ark's prominence. Verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And what we continually see about the ark is the fact that it is, the, it is absolutely central to every aspect of this campaign. But what I want us to pay attention to in this verse is the fact that it says that, that Joshua arose early. Now, it certainly seems based upon this and other occurrences we've seen with Joshua, he always getting up early. He's a morning person. Good to know. <laughs> My wife, it's so funny with time change because normally we wake up like 4.15. And I woke up, I was like, 3.15? Why the world am I getting up at 3.15? I could not, and I totally forgotten it was that. And it was like, and then later on, I was like, oh, that makes sense. But what happens is, is it possible that God's teaching us something different? Is it not just that we want to learn a little bit about Joshua's waking up habits? No, because remember, Joshua is a picture of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua is the Hebrew rendering of the name Jesus. And Joshua lived his life for the Lord, but check this out. So Joshua had kind of like a, it's Joshua, but he's also a picture of Christ. Now, if we go to Mark 16, two, verses, two, verses 2 and 6, it says this. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And this is uh, Mary and Martha and those guys. They're going to, uh, to, 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 the, to the cave or to the, to the tomb. And they said among themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And they looked and they saw the stone was rolled away for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side clothed in a long white garment. And they were affrighted. Notice this is an angel. Angels are not hot babes with wings. That's not the way Bibles show up. That's not, that's not angels in the Bible. Okay? They're always men. And they don't have wings, by the way. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where he laid. Now notice here. So Joshua rose, or Jesus rose early in the morning. Is it possible that these two things are related? Remember, Joshua is a picture of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says this, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Is it any possibility that this is a foreshadowing of the rising 
of the Savior. By way of his resurrection, right? By his death, burial, and resurrection, the Bible says the Son of Righteousness shall rise. And what's really cool when you look that up in Malachi 4.2, you see it on the screen. But unto you that fear my name, believers, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Notice the Son is capitalized S-U-N. It's not Son, S-O-N. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, those that are provided for. And if that's the case, if that's possibly what's happening there, then we see the ark as a part of this. So Joshua rises early, and then we see the ark. Well, is it possible that as royal priests of God that you and I are supposed to take up the message of the Savior? The word of God that's pictured in the ark, and we're supposed to carry it to the world. Mark 16, 15 says this, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is pictured in the story of the risen Savior. Recognize the fact that our job is to take up our ark, the word of God, and carry it to the world. Now, maybe that's a coincidence. But what I find is the more you study the word of God, there are no coincidences of the word. God uses specific words to teach specific things, to point to different things time and time and time again. He's putting spotlights in different areas of the Bible. And he just happens to use the wording that he does there. I could be completely wrong, but who knows? Maybe there's something there. But it certainly points to the prominence of the ark. Now let's consider its position. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. So as he stated earlier, right, the ark of the Lord is central to everything. It's super, super important. The presence of the ark would determine every decision that they made. This is, this is so cool. Everything was oriented around God's presence, seeking to accomplish God's will and not their own, Okay. And as children of God, guess what? The same should be true for us. Our life should be centered, every decision, around the word of God. God should be the center of our life, right? It should be central in how we make every choice that we do. How we raise our children, what our career would be, who our spouse is going to be. If we allow the Lord to lead us and guide us in our decisions, guess what? We cannot go wrong. Because God has what's best for us. He's always looking at what's best for us. And if we trust him and follow his, ray, his ways, God will work things out according to his plan. Remember, Matthew 6.33, what does it say? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Put me as priority one. Let me guide and direct your life. And guess what? All these things shall be added unto you. And the Israelites are displaying this truth right here in the ark from its creation in Exodus 3, verses, or Exodus 37, verse 1 and 9. One through nine. The ark has functioned as the core of the Israelite society. Okay, the tabernacle was to house the ark, and it was the center point. Every time they set up their camp, guess what it was all built around? The tabernacle was in the dead center, always in the middle of everything. And remember, the tabernacle had an outer court, an outer court that was accessible only to the common man. Then it had what was called the holy place. The holy place was accessible to a select group of priests. Then there was the most holy, or the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Lord would be, would be held. And interestingly enough, if you track the location of the Ark in this same thing, and we look at how these soldiers are lined up, well, the first section, the first procession, which happens to mirror the outer court, guess who was there? The common men, the soldiers. Then we go to the second section, mirroring the holy place. And who are there? A selective group of priests that would bear the trumpets. And then we have that third section, which was specifically for Right? Mirroring the Holy of Holies. It's where the tabernacle would rest. 
How cool is that? It's a consistency in the Bible because guess what? It is supernatural. This book was written by God. It's always speaking to us on different levels. It would just have ears, ears to hear it. Amen. God's revealing the position is key. And this position is key for them and it's key for us. And then interestingly enough, there's one more group that we see this, this rearward guard. This is in verse 13, but the rearward came after the ark of the Lord. And this rear guard, what their task was to watch out for the ark, right? Their, their job was to keep the ark in mind. They were, they were to watch those, those priests, because recognize the priests are carrying the ark. They're defenseless. They cannot defend themselves. So these guys kind of insulated the ark from those that were around them. And through this entire procession, they were the only ones that had a view of God. And this was an added precaution. When the ark was not encased in the tabernacle, it was to be protected or, or insulated. But what we see here is there's dire importance to where the Bible or where the, where the ark rests. At the same time, right, what it's doing is displaying for us the dire importance of the orientation of the, of the word of God and of the Lord in our life. It must be centralized. So we consider the ark of the Lord. We've looked at its presence, its prominence, and its position. Lastly, let's consider the Israelites' persistence. And this is where it becomes a little bit more personal for us, okay? Verse 14 says this. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp. So they did six days. Now we read this and we think, okay... What's the big deal? All right, they, they did their job. Now, working off of limited information, remember, all they know is where they're to go, all they know is what they are to carry, and the order that they are to walk. And then on top of that, God threw in the thing, by the way, psh, silence, right? No asking any questions, no talking to your friend, no nothing. You guys are going to remain absolutely silent. Don't make, any sound, make a sound for an entire week. Now, they don't even know that. They don't know when they're going to be able to speak. They just know there's a day coming when they will. But Hebrews 11.30, last week we looked at this. During this silence, what was God doing? He's developing their faith. 11.30 says this, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So if it was through their faith that the walls came down. We see that. The walls came down because of their face. But because of their face. Their faith, not their face. <laughs> but what's interesting is there's a little qualifier in there. Okay, Look at the back side of that, that sentence. There's a word here. The key word is after. Okay? Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Last week, we talked about the faith. And man, the faith is what brought the walls down. But guess what? There's another aspect of it as well. There is a faithfulness that must be displayed. Right? We saw this massive force encircle the city on day one. Here they go, man. They've done all this amazing work. Amazing. This is an investment of effort and time and energy. And what does it yield? No results. Nothing at all. They come back on day two. Everybody shows up. Everybody's exactly what they're supposed to do. Everyone remains silent. They do the entire march. They do everything. They go back to camp. Guess what the results are? Butkus. Nothing. Zero. No results at all. Jericho looks as strong today as it ever has. Maybe even stronger. The more you circle it, the more you look at it, the more it becomes like, whoa, this place is ridiculous. But we notice they didn't complain. No. They just did what God asked of them. And they go through this process and mobilize this massive force four more times over four more days. And each day, guess what it finishes us? Exactly as the day before. No results. No hint of what's to come. No cracks are recognized. No tremble, no shake, right? There's nothing going on. There's no moment of encouragement. There's no insight into what's to come and the victory that's coming. They don't know. Joshua knows, 
but they don't have a clue. They're walking by faith and faith alone. And after encircling this fortress now six times, sleeping on it, not talking to your friends, with your own thoughts running through your mind, going back six different times, going through this entire process, I would imagine if it was you and I, we would be a little disheartened. We're like, like, okay. This seems to be going nowhere. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. How many of you guys have just done something and you just felt like it was like, what's the point? (laughs) Am I just... Am I just going in circles here? I've had this conversation with them like 15 different times. And guess what? It ends up the same way every single time. And what we want is we want some kind of a confirmation. Some kind of an encouragement. But see, sometimes God doesn't give us that. Because what's he doing? Testing our faith. Will you persist? Will you stick it out? And we look at this. What's happened See, they did not allow what they saw or what they experienced to alter their commitment. They had vowed, and we saw it earlier in Joshua, to follow Joshua. We will follow you. They made a vow to follow him, and that's exactly what they're doing. And how many of us have made a vow to our Joshua? That we would follow him. We say that we love the Lord, man. We say we're followers of Christ. But see, Jesus told us this. If that was true, he would say you would keep my commandments. Remember what he said in John 14, 15? If you love me, like you say you do, keep my commandments. Then what was the commandments? What were they? He he whittled it down to two, right? Matthew 22, 37 through 39, we just saw them. Jesus saith unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Most of us think about the first one, loving God, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I got, I got that one. Hey, that's between you and God. I don't know. But that second one, yeesh, yeah. that one can be tough. Yeah. That love thy neighbor thing. When your neighbor's a big, fat jerk, <laughs> it's hard to love them, is it not? Right? When they're dismissive or condescending, just hurtful, man. Loving them can feel pretty impossible. And we think about the circle, right? And they're looking at those walls. And all they're getting in confirmation is that things aren't going to change. Right? Many times in our life, there may be an emotion that we're dealing with in our life. And we're doing our best to overcome it. And for whatever reason, we cannot get beyond it. For some reason, this just will not get away. There's a bitterness or a pain or a sadness or whatever's going on in our life. Or there's a person in our life that we just, no matter how many times we talk to him, we feel like it's going nowhere or it's getting worse. We're becoming more and more discouraged by the situation. Maybe it's us. Who knows what the circumstance is? Whatever the Jericho may reveal itself to be. But bottom line is, there are lots and lots of things in our life that we can feel as if it's not going where we want it to go. And we can get frustrated and we want to quit. But see, God doesn't tell us to quit. Amen. This thing doesn't end until God tells them it's over. When you shout, we're done. Hey, man, it's on. But right now, we're sometimes, some of us are in the silence. Some of us are in the marching. In Galatians chapter number 6, verse 9 says this. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Well-doing means you're doing God's way, right? You're responding to that person who's hateful to you in a loving and a righteous way. 
You're taking it in stride. You're praying for their soul. You're trusting God through your emotions or whatever it is you're facing. He's saying, don't quit. Persist, right? Don't quit. Persist. God knows it's hard. He knows it's hard. That's why he's asking us to do it. Because hard things change people. If we have to adapt our lives to do something, it affects who we are. Things that come easy, guess what? We don't have to change. We just stay the same person that we were when we got started. If it comes easy, yeah. That's why he says, you know what? You have no problem loving those that love you. But I'm telling you that I want you to love your enemy. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's not good. I don't want that one. God, can we trade that one in? I'd love to switch that out. No. This is what I'm asking you to do the, to do the hard thing. Because that will change you. See, it's not about changing them. us because listen when we remain consistent in spite of our results he builds our trust he builds our dependence he strengthens our faith and he shapes us to be a little bit more like he does and see that's the whole thing he says to the stature of the fullness of Christ this whole life is a process of shaving away us to reveal him because guess what He's in us. Amen. The Spirit of God dwells within us. And the more we deny our flesh, the more we kill the flesh, the more Christ shows up. If you imagine a block of stone, and there's an image inside of that, like when, they, when Michelangelo did the David, he said, when I got that block of marble, I just had to let David out. He was already in there. Yeah. I just had to chisel away. Chisel away. That's hard to say. Chisel away. That, that seems to go flow better. <laughs> chisel away the part that's not supposed to be there and so here you and i are sit we're a block of stone man it's comfortable being a block of stone we're secure as a block we're comfortable with being a block it doesn't require any effort to be a block but god's going no 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 some of those corners i need to shave off and there are gonna be people that he'll bring into your life and guess what they'll be chisels some people are jackhammers you're just like goodness gracious oh when you see them you're just like god man right but learning how to interact with that person and learning how to be graceful in that situation, guess what it does? It knocks off big chunks of us. And a huge chunk might slide off when you deal with them. Some people are just irritating, man. They're sandpaper. They just shave off a little bit. But as we learn to adapt to these situations and God gives us adversity and we don't see results, he's shaping us through it. And that's the point. We're not supposed to come out of this looking the way we got started. When you got saved, God said, you know what? I got a work to do. Let's get rolling, man. I got to start knocking off some chunks. And some of us are stubborn and we're hard-headed. And you know what it takes? Adversity, 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 adversity. We've got to face things that will beat us to our knees. And guess what we're doing? No, you'll not take off that piece. I love that piece of me. No. Give me some glue. Somebody give me some glue. Strap something. I don't want to let that go. I've hated that person for 30 years. It's a part of who I am. That hate is in my heart. It's a part of who I am. I'll never let it go. And God says, if you let it go, it'll set you free. And finally, you let it fall. <laughs> and you look a little bit more like him. He's telling us not to quit. Verse 10 says this. If we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And you see, when we face the Jerichos in our life, whatever... 
whatever they may be. Through the example of Joshua, what he's telling us, man, just faithfully show up dressed in the armor. You show up ready to march, and you do it until I tell you to stop. Because God has a plan. See, not concerning ourselves with the results. Just faithfulness. That's what's asked of us. The results are up to God. The faithfulness is up to us. But he has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for our path. And the most amazing thing is it will go with us every step of the way. Through the ark of the Lord, God has shown us with the Israelites. We've seen the power of God's presence, his prominence, and his position. And listen, though those are all direly important for our walk with God, if we won't be effective, they won't be effective in our lives unless we are persistent. Because if you quit, you never see the results. What does it say? And let us not be weary in well-doing. Right? For we, listen, if we're in due season, we shall reap. He says, in due season, the victory will come. In due season, right? Not in your timing. I don't have to tell you all the details. Your job, show up, march. Don't complain. Trust me. And I'll let you know when things are done. Right? And you shall reap if ye faint not. Don't quit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've shown us today. And I do, God, thank you so much for helping me to do my best to get out of the way. Lord, I, uh, I'm thankful for who you are in our lives, the way you've worked through adversity, the things you've taught us. Lord, help us just to walk by faith and trust you, Lord God. And we face the adversities of this life, Lord, not to look for results, but trust and keep going. For those of you today that are saying, you know what, right now, i got a struggle that I'm fighting. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. you got something in your life right now that's besetting you, something you're dealing with, some Jericho in your life, and you're asking God to bring victory, but you're struggling right now. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for God to intervene in your life and help you through this. If that's you today, you say, look, I'm a believer. I'm not, no, it's not about salvation, but hey, I see that hand. Amen. Anybody say, look, pray for me. I'm going through. (laughs) I see your hands, all of them. If you're here today and you say, look, I don't know where I stand with the Lord. I don't even know if I'm saved. Listen, I'm not talking about the fact that you 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 know church or you've experienced God or you believe in God. Those things are all wonderful. But listen, if you've never given your heart to Christ, if you've never surrendered to him, recognize the fact that you are a sinner on your way to hell on your own. There's no way out. You can never save yourself. There's nothing you can do. But Christ loved you in spite of yourself the same way he did me. 20 years ago, someone asked me if I died today, if I knew for sure I'd go to heaven. I said, I do not know. I hope so. That is not good enough because God said you can know. You can know. Christ died on that cross to save our souls from an eternal hell that we deserve. And through that love, he will redeem us and give us a home in heaven but he's not going to do it and overpower our will. This is where you must surrender. God's calling out to you. You have to respond. 
If you're here today and you say, look, I don't know where I stand with God, but I know I need Christ. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just like I asked before. Say, I don't know Christ, but I'm praying. I want to pray for you that God would help you to see your need of Christ. Just raise your hand. Say, pray for me. I don't know if I'm saved. Amen. I see that hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. I don't know if I'm saved, but I want to receive Christ. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, if you're watching this online, watching recorded, receiving Christ is nothing more than making a choice to choose him, to trust that God has the way out. He's ready to redeem you. It only takes faith. It's not a magic prayer. There's no ceremony to it. This is between you and him. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, I'm going to lead you in prayer. If you don't mean what you say in this prayer and you're not sincere, don't do it, please. But if you're sincere, God is listening. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me if you want to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sin. I know that you love me. God, I can't believe it, but I know you're willing to save me in the best way I know how. In this moment, I surrender my heart to you. I recognize my failures, and I ask you to save my soul, to give me a home in heaven and redeem me. Lord, I want to live for you. God, walk with me now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.